Section One of Marty and a Voyage Thither, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Marty and a Voyage Thither, Volume Two, by Herman Melville. Chapters One through Five. Chapter One, Marama. We are now voyaging straight for Marama, where lived and reigned in mystery the High Pontiff of the adjoining isles, Prince, Priest, and God in his own proper person, Great Lord Paramount over many kings in Marty, his hands full of scepters and croziers. Soon, rounding a lofty and insulated shore, the great central peak of the island came in sight, domineering over the neighboring hills, the same aspiring pinnacle descried and drawing near the archipelago in the chamois. "'Tall peak of Ofo!' cried Babalanja. "'How comes it that thy shadow so broods over Mardi, flinging new shades upon spots already shaded by the hillsides?' shade upon shade yet so it is said yumi sadly that where that shadow falls gay flowers refuse to spring and men long dwelling therein become shady of face and of soul hast thou come from out of the shadows of ofo inquires the stranger of one with a clouded brow it was by this same peak said mohi that the nimble god ru a great sinner above, came down from the skies a very long time ago. Three skips and a jump, and he landed on the plain. But alas, poor Rue, though easy the descent, there was no climbing back. No wonder, then, said Babalanja, that the peak is inaccessible to man, though with a strange infatuation many still make pilgrimages thereto and wearily climb and climb, till slipping from the rocks they fall headlong backward, and oftentimes perish at its base. Ay, said Mohi, in vain on all sides of the peak various paths are tried. In vain new ones are cut through the cliffs and the brambles. Ofo yet remains inaccessible. Nevertheless, said Babalanja, by some it is believed that those who, by dint of hard struggling, climb so high as to become invisible from the plain, that these have attained the summit, though others much doubt whether their becoming invisible is not because of their having fallen and perished by the way. And wherefore, said Medea, do you mortals undertake the ascent at all? Why not be content on the plain? And even if attainable, what would you do upon that lofty, clouded summit? or how can you hope to breathe that rarefied air unfitted for your human lungs? True, my lord, said Babalanja, and Bardiana asserts that the plain alone was intended for man, who should be content to dwell under the shade of its groves, though the roots thereof descend into the darkness of the earth. But, my lord, you well know that there are those in Marty who secretly regard all stories connected with this peak as inventions of the people of Marama. They deny that anything is to be gained by making a pilgrimage thereto, and for warranty they appeal to the sayings of the great prophet Alma, 
cried Mohi. But Alma is also quoted by others in vindication of the pilgrimages to Ofo. They declare that the prophet himself was the first pilgrim that thitherward journeyed, that from thence he departed to the skies. Now, excepting this same peak, Marama is all rolling hill and dale, like the sea after a storm, which then seems not to roll but to stand still, poising its mountains. Yet the landscape of Marama has not the merriness of meadows, partly because of the shadow of Ofo, and partly because of the solemn groves in which the Morais and temples are buried. According to Mohi, not one solitary tree bearing fruit, not one esculent root grows in all the isle, the population wholly depending upon the large tribute remitted from the neighboring shores. It is not that the soil is unproductive, said Mohi, that these things are so. It is extremely fertile, but the inhabitants say that it would be wrong to make a breadfruit orchard of the holy island. And hence, my lord, said Babalanja, while others are charged with the business of their temporal welfare, these islanders take no thought of the morrow, and broad Marama lies one fertile waste in the lagoon. CHAPTER Two, THEY LAND Coming close to the island, the pennons and trappings of our canoes were removed, and Vivi was commanded to descend from the shark's mouth, and for a time to lay aside his conch. In token of reverence, our paddlers also stripped to the waist, an example which even Medea followed, though, as a king, the same homage he rendered was at times rendered himself. At every place hitherto visited, joyous crowds stood ready to hail our arrival, but the shores of Marama were silent and forlorn. Said Babalanja, It looks not as if the lost one were here. At length we landed in a little cove nigh a valley, which Mohi called Uma, and here in silence we beached our canoes. But presently there came to us an old man, with a beard white as the mane of the pale horse. He was clad in a midnight robe. He fanned himself with a fan of faded leaves. A child led him by the hand, for he was blind wearing a green plantain leaf over his plaited brow. Him Medea accosted, making mention who we were, and on what errand we came, to seek out Yila, and behold the isle. Whereupon Pani, for such was his name, gave us a courteous reception, and lavishly promised to discover sweet Yila, declaring that in Marama if anywhere, the long-lost maiden must be found. He assured us that throughout the whole land he would lead us, leaving no place desirable to be searched, unexplored. And so saying, he conducted us to his dwelling for refreshment and repose. It was large and lofty. Nearby, however, were many miserable hovels with squalid inmates but the old man's retreat was exceedingly comfortable, especially abounding in mats for lounging. His rafters were bowed down by calabashes of good cheer. During the repast which ensued, blind Pani, freely partaking, 
enlarged upon the merit of abstinence, declaring that a thatch overhead and a coconut tree comprised all that was necessary for the temporal welfare of a Mardian. More than this, he assured us was sinful. He now made known that he officiated as guide in this quarter of the country, and that as he had renounced all other pursuits to devote himself to showing strangers the island, and more particularly the best way to ascend lofty Ofo, he was necessitated to seek remuneration for his toil. My lord, then whispered Mohi to Medea, the great prophet Alma always declared that without charge this island was free to all. What recompense do you desire, old man? said Medea to Pani. What I seek is but little. Twenty rolls of fine tapa, two score mats of best upland grass, one canoe load of breadfruit and yams, ten gourds of wine, and forty strings of teeth. You are a large company, but my requisitions are small. Very small, said Mohi. You are extortionate, good Pani, said Medea. And what wants an aged mortal like you with all these things? I thought superfluities were worthless, nay, sinful, said Babalanja. Is not this your habitation already more than abundantly supplied with all desirable furnishings? asked Yumi. I am but a lowly laborer, said the old man, meekly crossing his arms. But does not the lowliest laborer ask and receive his reward? And shall I miss mine? But I beg charity of none. What I ask, I demand. And in the dread name of great Alma, who appointed me a guide. And to and fro he strode, groping as he went. Marking his blindness, whispered Babalanja to Medea. My lord, methinks this Pani must be a poor guide. In his journeys inland, his little child leads him. Why not, then, take the guide's guide? But Pani would not part with the child. Then said Mohi in a low voice, My lord Medea, though I am no appointed guide, yet will I undertake to lead you aright over all this island, for I am an old man and have been here oft by myself, though I cannot undertake to conduct you up the peak of Ofo, and to the more secret temples. Then Pani said, And what mortal may this be who pretends to thread the labyrinthine wilds of Marama? Beware. He is one with eyes that see, made answer Babalanja. Follow him not, said Pani, for he will lead thee astray. No Yila will he find, and having no warrant as a guide, the curses of Alma will accompany him. Now this was not altogether without effect, for Pani and his fathers before him had always filled the office of guide. Nevertheless, Medea at last decided that this time Mohi should conduct us, which, being communicated to Pani, he desired us to remove from his roof. So, withdrawing to the skirt of a neighboring grove, we lingered a while to refresh ourselves for the journey and prospect. As we here reclined, there came up from the seaside a party of pilgrims but newly arrived. Apprised of their coming, Pani and his child went out to meet them, and, standing in the path, he cried, 
I am the appointed guide. In the name of Alma, I conduct all pilgrims to the temples. This must be the worthy Pani, said one of the strangers, turning upon the rest. Let us take him, then, for our guide, cried they, and all drew near. But upon accosting him, they were told that he guided none without recompense. And now, being informed that the foremost of the pilgrims was one Divino, a wealthy chief of a distant island, Pani demanded of him his requital. But the other demurred, and by many soft speeches at length abated the recompense to three promissory coconuts, which he covenanted to send Pani at some future day. The next pilgrim accosted was a sad-eyed maiden in decent but scanty raiment, who, without seeking to diminish Pani's demands, promptly placed in his hands a small hoard of the money of Mardi. "'Take it, holy guide,' she said. "'It is all I have.' But the third pilgrim, one Fauna, a hale matron in handsome apparel, needed no asking to bestow her goods. Calling upon her attendants to advance with their burdens, she quickly unrolled them, and wound round and round Pani, fold after fold of the costliest tapas, and filled both his hands with teeth, and his mouth with some savory marmalade, and poured oil upon his head, and knelt and besought of him a blessing. "'From the bottom of my heart I bless thee,' said Pani, and still holding her hands exclaimed, "'Take example from this woman, O Divino, and do ye likewise, ye pilgrims all.' "'Not to-day,' said Divino. "'We are not rich like unto Fauna,' said the rest. Now the next pilgrim was a very old and miserable man, stone-blind, covered with rags, and supporting his steps with a staff. "'My recompense,' said Pani. "'Alas, I have naught to give. Behold my poverty.' "'I cannot see,' replied Pani. But feeling of his garments, he said, "'Thou wouldst deceive me. Hast thou not this robe and this staff?' "'O oh, merciful Pani, take not my all,' wailed the pilgrim but his worthless gabardine was thrust into the dwelling of the guide. Meanwhile, the matron was still enveloping Pani in her interminable tapas. But the sad-eyed maiden, removing her upper mantle, threw it over the naked form of the beggar. The fifth pilgrim was a youth of an open, ingenious aspect, and with an eye full of eyes, his step was light. "'Who art thou?' cried Pani as the stripling touched him in passing. "'I go to ascend the peak,' said the boy. "'Then take me for guide.' "'No, I am strong and lithesome. Alone must I go.' "'But how knowest thou the way?' "'There are many ways. The right one I must seek for myself.' "'Ah, poor deluded one,' sighed Pani. "'But thus is it ever with youth.' and rejecting the monitions of wisdom, suffer they must. Go on and perish. Turning, the boy exclaimed, Though I act counter to thy counsels, O Pani, I but follow the divine instinct in me. Poor youth, murmured Babalanja, 
how earnestly he struggles in his bonds. But though rejecting a guide, still he clings to that legend of the peak. The rest of the pilgrims now tarried with the guide, preparing for their journey inland. Chapter 3. They Pass Through the Woods Refreshed by our stay in the grove, we rose and placed ourselves under the guidance of Mohi, who went on in advance. Winding our way among jungles, we came to a deep hollow, planted with one gigantic palm-shaft, belted round by saplings springing from its roots. But, Laocoon-like, Siren sons stood locked in the serpent folds of gnarled, distorted banyans, and the banyan bark, eating into their vital wood, corrupted their veins of sap, till all those palm-nuts were poisoned chalices. Nearby stood clean-limbed, comely manchineels, with lustrous leaves and golden fruit. You would have deemed them trees of life, but underneath their branches grew no blade of grass, no herb, nor moss. The bare earth was scorched by heaven's own dews, filtrated through that fatal foliage. Farther on there frowned a grove of blended banyan boughs, thick-ranked manchineels, and many a upas, their summits gilded by the sun. But below, deep shadows darkening nightshade ferns and mandrakes. Buried in their midst, and dimly seen among large leaves, all halberd-shaped, were piles of stone, supporting falling temples of bamboo. Thereon frogs leaped in dampness, trailing round their slime. Thick hung the rafters, with lines of pendant sloths. The upas trees dropped darkness round. So dense the shade, nocturnal birds found there perpetual night, and throve on poisoned air. Owls hooted from dead boughs, or one by one sailed by on silent pinions. Cranes stalked abroad, or brooded in the marshes. Adders hissed, bats smote the darkness, ravens croaked, and vampires, fixed on slumbering lizards, fanned the sultry air. Chapter 4 Hivohiti, 1848 Now those doleful woodlands passed, straightaway converse was renewed, and much discourse took place concerning Hivohiti, pontiff of the isle. For during our first friendly conversation with Pani, Medea had inquired for Hivohiti, and sought to know in what part of the island he abode. Whereto Pani had replied that the pontiff would be invisible for several days to come, being engaged with particular company. And upon further inquiry as to who were the personages monopolizing his hospitalities, Medea was dumb when informed that they were no other than certain incorporeal deities from above, passing the Capricorn solstice at Marama. As on we journeyed, much curiosity being expressed to know more of the pontiff and his guests, old Mohi, familiar with these things, was commanded to enlighten the company. He complied, and his recital was not a little significant of the occasional credulity of chroniclers. According to his statement, the deities entertained by Hivohiti belonged to the third class of immortals. These, however, were far elevated above the corporeal demigods of Mardi. 
Indeed, in Hivohiti's eyes, the greatest demigods were as gourds. Little wonder, then, that their superiors were accounted the most genteel characters on his visiting list. These immortals were wonderfully fastidious and dainty as to the atmosphere they breathed, inhaling no sublunary air, but that of the elevated interior, where the pontiff had a rural lodge, for the special accommodation of impalpable guests, who were entertained at very small cost, dinners being unnecessary, and dormitories superfluous. But Hivohiti permitted not the presence of these celestial grandees to interfere with his own solid comfort. Passing his mornings in highly intensified chat, he thrice reclined at his ease, partaking of a fine plantain pudding and pouring out from a calabash of celestial old wine, meanwhile carrying on the flow of soul with his guests. And truly the sight of their entertainer thus enjoying himself in the flesh while they themselves starved on the ether must have been exceedingly provoking to these aristocratic and aerial strangers. It was reported, furthermore, that Hivohiti, one of the haughtiest of pontiffs, purposely treated his angelical guests thus cavalierly in order to convince them that, though a denizen of earth, a sublunarian, and in respect of heaven a mere provincial, he, Hivohiti, accounted himself full as good as seraphim from the capital, and that too at the Capricorn solstice or any other time of the year. Strongly bent was Hivohiti upon humbling their supercilious pretensions. Besides, was he not accounted a great god in the land, supreme, having power of life and death, essaying the deposition of kings, and dwelling in moody state all by himself in the goodliest island of Mardi? Though here, be it said, that his assumptions of temporal supremacy were but seldom made good by express interference with the secular concerns of the neighboring monarchs, who, by force of arms, were too apt to argue against his claims to authority. However, in theory, they bowed to it. And now, for the genealogy of Hivohiti. For eighteen hundred and forty-seven Hivohitis were alleged to have gone before him. He came in a right line from the divine Hivohiti I, the original grantee of the empire of men's souls, and the first swayer of a crozier. The present pontiff's descent was unquestionable, his dignity having been transmitted through none but heirs male, the whole procession of high priests being the fruit of successive marriages between uterine brother and sister, a conjunction deemed incestuous in some lands, but here held the only fit channel for the pure transmission of elevated rank. Added to the hereditary appellation, Hivohiti, which simply denoted the sacerdotal station of the pontiffs, and was but seldom employed in current discourse, they were individualized by a distinctive name bestowed upon them at birth. And the degree of consideration in which they were held may be inferred from the fact that, during the lifetime of a pontiff, the leading sound in his name was banned to ordinary uses. Whence, at every new accession to the archiepiscopal throne, it came to pass that multitudes of words and phrases were either essentially modified or wholly dropped. Wherefore, the language of Marama was incessantly fluctuating, and had become so full of jargonings that the birds in the groves were greatly puzzled, 
not knowing where lay the virtue of sounds so incoherent. And, in a good measure, this held true of all tongues spoken throughout the archipelago. The birds marveling at mankind, and mankind at the birds, wondering how they could continually sing, when, for all man knew to the contrary, it was impossible they could be holding intelligent discourse. And thus, though for thousands of years men and birds had been dwelling together in Marty, they remained wholly ignorant of each other's secrets, the islander regarding the fowl as a senseless songster, forever in the clouds, and the fowl, him as a screeching crane, destitute of pinions and lofty aspirations. Over and above numerous other miraculous powers imputed to the pontiffs as spiritual potentates, there was ascribed to them one special privilege of a secular nature, that of healing with a touch the bites of the ravenous sharks swarming throughout the lagoon. With these they were supposed to be upon the most friendly terms, according to popular accounts, sociably bathing with them in the sea, permitting them to rub their noses against their priestly thighs, playfully mouthing their hands with all their tears of teeth. At the ordination of a pontiff, the ceremony was not deemed complete until embarking in his barge he was saluted high priest by three sharks drawing near, with teeth turned up, swimming beside his canoe. These monsters were deified in Marama, had altars there. It was deemed worse than homicide to kill one. And what if they destroy human life, say the islanders? Are they not sacred? Now many more wonderful things were related touching Hivohiti, and though one could not but doubt the validity of many prerogatives ascribed to him, it was nevertheless hard to do otherwise than entertain for the pontiff that sort of profound consideration which all render to those who indisputably possess the power of quenching human life with a wish. CHAPTER Five, THEY VISIT THE GREAT MARAI as garrulous guide to the party, Braidbeard soon brought us nigh the great Marai of Marama, the burial place of the pontiffs, and a rural promenade for certain idols there inhabiting. Our way now led through the bed of a shallow watercourse, Mohi observing as we went that our feet were being washed at every step, whereas to tread the dusty earth would be to desecrate the holy Marai by transferring thereto the base soil of less sacred ground. Here and there, thatched arbors were thrown over the stream for the accommodation of devotees, who, in these consecrated waters, issuing from a spring in the Marai, bathed their garments that long life might ensue. Yet, as Braidbeard assured us, sometimes it happened that diverse, feeble old men zealously donning their raiment immediately after immersion became afflicted with rheumatics, and instances were related of their falling down dead in this their pursuit of longevity. Coming to the Marai, we found it enclosed by a wall, and while the rest were surmounting it, Mohi was busily engaged in the apparently childish occupation of collecting pebbles. Of these, however, to our no small surprise, he presently made use by irreverently throwing them at all objects to which he was desirous of directing attention. In this manner was pointed out a black boar's head, suspended from a bough. Full twenty of these sentries 
were on post in the neighboring trees. Proceeding, we came to a hillock of bone-dry sand resting upon the otherwise loamy soil. Possessing a secret preservative virtue, this sand had, ages ago, been brought from a distant land to furnish a sepulchre for the pontiffs, who here, side by side and sire by son, slumbered all peacefully in the fellowship of the grave. Mohi declared that, were the sepulchre to be opened, it would be the resurrection of the whole line of high priests. But a resurrection of bones, after all, said Babalanja, ever osseous in his allusions to the departed. Passing on, we came to a number of runic-looking stones, all over hieroglyphical inscriptions, and placed round an elliptical aperture, where welled up the sacred spring of the Marai, clear as crystal and showing through its waters two tiers of sharp, tusk-like stones, the mouth of Oro, so-called. And it was held that if any secular hand should be immersed in the spring, straight upon it those stony jaws would close. We next came to a large image of a dark-hued stone representing a burly man with an overgrown head and abdomen hollowed out and open for inspection. Therein were relics of bones. Before this image we paused. And whether or no it was Mohi's purpose to make us tourists quake with his recitals, his revelations were far from agreeable. At certain seasons human beings were offered to the idol which, being an epicure in the matter of sacrifices, would accept of no ordinary fare. To ensure his digestion, all indirect routes to the interior were avoided, the sacrifices being packed in the ventricle itself. Near to this image of Dolima, so-called, a solitary forest tree was pointed out, leafless and dead to the core but from its boughs hang numerous baskets brimming over with melons, grapes, and guavas, and daily these baskets were replenished. As we here stood, there passed a hungry figure in ragged raiment, hollow cheeks and hollow eyes. Wistfully he eyed the offerings, but retreated, knowing it was sacrilege to touch them. There they must decay in honor of the god Anana for so this dead tree was denominated by Mohi. Now, as we were thus strolling about the Morai, the old chronicler elucidating its mysteries, we suddenly spied Pani and the pilgrims approaching the image of Dolima, his child leading the guide. This, began Pani, pointing to the idol of stone, is the holy god Anana, who lives in the sap of this green and flourishing tree. Thou meanest not surely this stone image we behold, said Divino. I mean the tree, said the guide. It is no stone image. Strange, muttered the chief. Were it not a guide that spoke, I would deny it. As it is, I hold my peace. Mystery of mysteries, cried the blind old pilgrim. Is it, then, a stone image that Pani calls a tree? Oh, Oro, that I had eyes to see, that I might verily behold it, and then believe it to be what it is not, that so I might prove the largeness of my faith, and so merit the blessing of Alma. Thrice sacred Anana, murmured the sad-eyed maiden, 
falling upon her knees before Delima, receive my adoration. Of thee I know nothing but what the guide has spoken. I am but a poor, weak-minded maiden, judging not for myself, but leaning upon others that are wiser. These things are above me. I am afraid to think. In Alma's name, receive my homage. And she flung flowers before the god. But Fauna, the hale matron, turning upon Pani, exclaimed, Receive more gifts, O guide. And again she showered them upon him. Upon this, the willful boy, who would not have Pani for his guide, entered the Morai, and perceiving the group before the image, walked rapidly to where they were. And beholding the idol, he regarded it attentively, and said, This must be the image of Dolima, but I am not sure. Nay, cried the blind pilgrim, it is the holy tree Anana, thou wayward boy. A tree? Whatever it may be, it is not that. Thou art blind, old man. But, though blind, I have that which thou lackest. Then said Pani, turning upon the boy, Depart from the holy Morai, and corrupt not the hearts of these pilgrims. Depart, I say, and in the sacred name of Alma, perish in thy endeavors to climb the peak. I may perish there in truth, said the boy with sadness but it shall be in the path revealed to me in my dream, and think not, O guide, that I perfectly rely upon gaining that lofty summit. I will climb high Ofo with hope, not faith. O mighty Oro, help me. Be not impious, said Pani. Pronounce not Oro's sacred name too lightly. Oro is but a sound, said the boy. They call the supreme god Ati, in my native isle. It is the soundless thought of him, O guide, that is in me. Hark to his rhapsodies! Hark how he prates of mysteries that not even Hivohiti can fathom! Nor he, nor thou, nor I, nor any! Oro, to all, is Oro the unknown. Why claim to know Oro, then, better than others? I am not so vain and I have little to substitute for what I cannot receive. But I feel Oro in me, yet cannot declare the thought. Proud boy, thy humility is a pretense. At heart thou deemest thyself wiser than Mardi. Not near so wise. To believe is a haughty thing. My very doubts humiliate me. I weep and doubt. All Mardi may be light and I too simple to discern. He is mad, said the chief Divino. Never before heard I such words. They are thoughts, muttered the guide. Poor fool, cried Fauna. Lost youth, sighed the maiden. He is but a child, said the beggar. These whims will soon depart. Once I was like him, but praise be to Alma, in the hour of sickness I repented, feeble old man that I am. It is because I am young and in health, said the boy, that I more nourish the thoughts that are born of my youth and my health. I am fresh from my maker, soul and body unwrinkled. On thy sick couch, old man, they took thee at advantage. 
turn from the blasphemer cried pani hence thou evil one to the perdition in store i will go my ways said the boy but oro will shape the end and he quitted the murai after conducting the party round the sacred enclosure assisting his way with his staff for his child had left him Pani seated himself on a low, mossy stone, grimly surrounded by idols, and directed the pilgrims to return to his habitation, where ere long he would rejoin them. The pilgrims departed. He remained in profound meditation, while backward and forward an invisible plowshare turned up the long furrows on his brow. Long he was silent, then muttered to himself, that boy, that wild, wise boy, has stabbed me to the heart. His thoughts are my suspicions. But he is honest. Yet I harm none. Multitudes must have unspoken meditations as well as I. Do we then mutually deceive? Off masks, mankind, that I may know what warranty of fellowship with others my own thoughts possess. Why, upon this one theme, O Oro, must all dissemble? Our thoughts are not our own. Whate'er it be, an honest thought must have some germ of truth. But we must set, as flows the general stream. I blindly follow where I seem to lead. The crowd of pilgrims is so great, they see not there is none to guide. It hinges upon this. Have we angelic spirits? But in vain, in vain, O Oro, I essay to live out of this poor blind body, fit dwelling for my sightless soul. Death, death, blind. Am I dead? For blindness seems a consciousness of death. Will my grave be more dark than all is now? From dark to dark. What is this subtle something that is in me and eludes me will it have no end when then did it begin all all is chaos what is this shining light in heaven this sun they tell me of or do they lie methinks it might blaze convictions but i brood and grope in blackness i am dumb with doubt yet tis not doubt but worse. I doubt my doubt. O oh, ye all-wise spirits in the air, how can ye witness all this woe and give no sign? Would, would that mine were a settled doubt, like that wild boy's, who without faith seems full of it. The undoubting doubter believes the most. Oh, that I were he! Methinks that daring boy hath Alma in him, struggling to be free. But those pilgrims, that trusting girl, what if they saw me as I am? Peace, peace, my soul. On, mask, again. And he staggered from the Marai. End of section one. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.